Hey there, MLB Morning Coffee listeners. Love the show? Well, now we are open to advertising opportunities. Get your name and your brand on our show daily. Email greg.moraz, that's G-R-E-G dot M-R-O-Z at yahoo.com to learn how you can be a part of this program. Advertising opportunities now available here on MLB Morning Coffee. Now, sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Ah, yes, it is MLB Morning Coffee here on a Saturday from the Ocean Avenue Studios in San Francisco, California. Thank you to everybody for joining us here. We've got a lot to talk about today. Only two playoff games to recap, but we've got two significant stories, one of which I think is very important moving forward, and the one we're going to start with is in memoriam. Bob Gibson died yesterday at the age of 84 at his home in Omaha, Nebraska. Now, I will say this, amongst modern baseball fans like myself, people that never got to see Bob Gibson pitch, he is probably one of the most underappreciated pitchers of all time. And the reason why I say that is that Bob Gibson in his era was so dominant, they had to lower the mound. It was because of Bob Gibson that they ended up lowering the pitching mound. Watching how Bob Gibson pitched, it was pretty damn evident that he was one of the most dominant pitchers of his generation. The guy just quite simply was the most dominant pitcher that you probably saw when you just looked at video of him or looked at him straight up. He came across the mound with a flailing motion. He somehow was able to command all sides of the plate, and granted, he did have command issues at times. His third season in the major leagues, which was back in 1961, he led the National League with 119 walks issued. However, Gibson was one of the most dominant strikeout pitchers of his generation. From 1962 until 1966, he had over 200 strikeouts in all five of those years. He led the National League in strikeouts in 1968, which many consider to be one of the greatest seasons by a pitcher of all time. He went 22-9 in 1968 and had a 112 ERA which led all of Major League Baseball. Gibson had 28 complete games and 13 shutouts. That's insane. He pitched 304 and two-thirds innings of work. We hardly see guys get to 200 innings anymore, let alone 300 innings. He led all of Major League Baseball in fielders' independent pitching percentage, which is a metric that basically is ERA with what is defined as average defense. That was at 177. Gibson that year only walked 62 batters. So while in his third year he had 166 strikeouts to 119 walks, he only had 62 walks and 268 strikeouts. He won the Cy Young going away, and he also won the MVP. His second Cy Young came in 1970 when he led the National League in wins with 23. He won 23-7 with a 3-12 earned run average in 294 innings of work, he struck out 274 and walked 88. So despite the fact that he did not lead the big leagues in strikeouts that season, it was still a career high for him in regards to his strikeout totals. Gibson had over 265 strikeouts four different times in his career. He had 270 in 1965. He had 268 in 68. 
He had 269 in 69, which that's just a really fun little idiom. And in 1970, he had 274 strikeouts. He won his second Cy Young. Gibson was a nine-time Major League All-Star. He made the All-Star team in consecutive years from 1965 to 1970. His last really dominant year came in 1972, which was his final All-Star appearance. He went 19-11 with a 2.46 ERA in 278 innings of work. He struck out 208 walked just 88, he finished ninth in Cy Young voting. Bob Gibson played his entire career with the St. Louis Cardinals, and I think what's remarkable, he was born in 1935 in Omaha, Nebraska, and he died in Omaha, Nebraska, just about a month shy of what would have been his 85th birthday. He was battling cancer and in poor health for quite some time. He was the World Series MVP in 1964 and 1967 when he won both, obviously, of his two World Series titles. Nicknamed Gibby, he had a career record of 251 and 174 and a career ERA, and this is a pretty staggering figure, at just 291. Bob Gibson had 3,884 and a third career innings pitched. This is what's remarkable to me. Bob Gibson pitched over 300 innings twice in his career. He did it in 1968, which, as I said before, probably one of the greatest seasons ever by a major league pitcher, and he did it again in 1969. 314 innings is something ungodly. Oh, by the way, I forgot to mention, Bob Gibson also had nine gold glove awards, so he was also phenomenal at fielding his position, That was, by the way, nine consecutive gold gloves from 1965 until 1973. He retired after the 1975 season. And this is my favorite stat of all, and this honestly proves why Major League Baseball is never going to be what it once was. Bob Gibson had 251 wins. He had more complete games than he did wins. You never see that anymore. You'll never see that again. It's just insane to me how reliable Bob Gibson was and how dominant he was for as long as he was and the fact that he was always able to eat up innings. The dude was quite simply an Iron Man. Nicknamed Hoot and also having the nickname Gibby, he was not afraid to go inside on guys either. And I think that he mastered the art of the brushback pitch, something that I hope is used more effectively in future years. So I will say that I am sincerely appreciative as a baseball fan for what Bob Gibson did. So it's been a rough month or so for the Cardinals. They lose Lou Brock. Now they lose Bob Gibson. And they also got eliminated last night by the San Diego Padres. But we're going to get to that in just a little bit. The final story I do want to get to in our opening segment is the news that Major League Baseball, after over 75 years, is going to take Kennesaw Mountain Landis' name off of the MVP trophies. This is significant because Kennesaw Mountain Landis was the commissioner that decided that African Americans were not allowed to play in Major League Baseball. And it wasn't until three years after his death, he died in 1944, it wasn't until three years after that, where Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier as the first African-American player in Major League Baseball. 
The Baseball Writers Association of America President Paul Sullivan, who is a beat writer for the White Sox and the Cubs for the Chicago Tribune, wrote this. Quote, this past summer, two Most Valuable Player Award winners, Barry Larkin and Terry Pendleton, spoke of their discomfort with the name of Kennesaw Mountain Landis attached to their awards. Landis, baseball's first commissioner, served from 1920 to 1944 and notably failed to integrate the game during his tenure. A motion to remove Landis's name from the MVP award was made in July by longtime member Ken Rosenthal, and after an online discussion of the issue, the BBWAA membership voted this week to remove the name beginning in 2020. Whether the award will be renamed has been tabled until after the 2020 season. I think this is great. One of the reasons why baseball even has a commissioner is because of the Black Sox scandal of 1919. Kennesaw Mountain Landis was a judge, and he was the one that was brought in to decide the fates of the players that ended up gambling on baseball. The first year of a commissioner was 1920, and Landis died in 1944. Great move in my opinion. I think symbolic for all of the right reasons. I would love to see it be named after an African-American player. Maybe you name it the Willie Mays MVP award, although that's already attached to the Most Valuable Player Award for the World Series. You could name it the Jackie Robinson Award, although there's already a Jackie Robinson Award. You could come up with a key African-American figure to name the MVP after. Hey, honestly, because he just passed, and I think a lot of people would agree, you could name it after Bob Gibson one of the most famous African-American pitchers of all time. There are a lot of different ways you can go with this, but removing Landis's name, I think, is symbolically the right move. It is something that in our modern society you cannot have. And look, I don't know much about Kennesaw Mountain Landis, but I will say this, his name clearly stands for segregation, at least in the game of baseball. So taking his name off the trophies signifies a step forward for Major League Baseball culture. Anyways, it's now time to recap the two playoff games from yesterday. We're going to start off, because of Bob Gibson, we're going to start off with the Cardinals and the Padres. Man alive, I got to tell you, the San Diego Padres are a resilient team. Without Mike Clevenger or Denilson Lamette, they had to go with a bullpen day. And sure enough... When you use nine pitchers, nobody knows what to expect. But the San Diego Padres, in a winner-take-all game three against the St. Louis Cardinals, they bullpened themselves to a shutout and got some key hits thanks to a couple of unlikely heroes, including a former University of Michigan two-way player that was sent over in a trade from the Tampa Bay Rays. That would be a one Jake Cronenworth. Try to get another ground ball and get out of here. Instead, it's lifted into center field. Back is Carlson at the fence. Gone! Solo shot, Jay Cronenworth. That Cronenworth homer was the icing on the cake for San Diego. They shut out St. Louis 4-0 in a winner-take-all game three. The runs for the Padres in the bottom of the fifth inning in a scoreless ball game. Eric Hosmer with an RBI double. Then bottom seven, two runs scored thanks to a Manny Machado fielder's choice and an Eric Hosmer walk with the bases loaded. Then bottom eight, it was that Jake Cronenworth homer that you just heard that put San Diego up four to nothing. The Padres used nine pitchers to shut out St. Louis, and they held the Cardinals to just four hits in the ball game. The winning pitcher, and granted, it's very hard to decide, 
is Austin Adams, who pitched a third of an inning. It was him that was in the game when the Padres took their first lead. Jack Flaherty took the loss despite giving up only one run on six hits in six innings. He walked two and struck out eight. There was no save in the ball game. Trevor Rosenthal, their closer, though, did pitch the ninth inning. For San Diego, it is their first playoff series win since 1998 when they advanced to the World Series where they were swept by the Yankees. But for San Diego, this is a brand new team. This is a brand new era of Padre baseball. They are young. They are fun. They're exciting. It is hard not to like this iteration of the San Diego Padres. For the St. Louis Cardinals, this was a team that underperformed, obviously had a lot of things go against them due to COVID and had to make up more games than anybody else over the course of September, yet they still got to the playoffs and they won the first game. They had leads in the sixth inning or later in each of the first two games, but it looked like the Cardinals just ran out of gas. Their offense was not good. The bottom four in the lineup did not have a hit, and that includes two various pinch hitters for nine-place hitter Harrison Bader, who had a very rough series. You had single hits in the game for Colton Wong, Tommy Edmond, Dylan Carlson, and Yadier Molina. For San Diego, Jake Cronenworth was the star. He goes three for four with an RBI and two runs scored. Mitch Moreland goes two for four. And I honestly thought that St. Louis was going to win the game just based on the news of Bob Gibson's passing, but sometimes sentimentality doesn't always go that direction. Fernando Tatis Jr., by the way, went one for two with two walks and a run scored. So the Central Division was 0 for 6 in the Wild Card Series, leaving the Chicago Cubs as the only team that could potentially salvage the Central's reputation in this year's playoffs. To do that, though, they'd have to win two consecutive games against the Miami Marlins after losing the first game 5-1 at Wrigley Field on Wednesday. However, despite a good performance from Hugh Darvish, the Cubs' offense let them down, and the Marlins took a crack in the door and blew it wide open. It'll be a 2-2 to Garrett Cooper. And he swings. It's a high fly ball. Long way, deep to left, at the wall, Schwarber. Goodbye, Garrett Cooper! A lucky seventh inning again for the Marlins. Today with two outs in the seventh, Garrett Cooper breaks the scoreless tie. It's 1-0 Miami. Garrett Cooper's homer made it 1-0 Marlins. They would make it 2-0 thanks to an RBI from Magnary Sierra. And the Marlins shut out the Cubs 2-0 to sweep Chicago out of the playoffs. The Marlins win their first postseason series since the 2003 World Series. Miami has never lost a postseason series. They are 7-0 in playoff series. They've only made the playoffs three times. They won the World Series in 1997, and they won the World Series in 2003. Brandon Boxberger gets the win out of the Marlins' bullpen. He goes an inning and a third of hitless baseball. Yu Darvish takes the loss. He gave up the homer, but look, you cannot put this on Yu Darvish. He goes six and two-thirds, allows two runs on five hits, walks two, strikes out six. Magnary Sierra's RBI came after the Garrett Cooper home run. So while Darvish gives up all the runs, you cannot get on the Cubs' best starter for giving up two runs in six and two-thirds innings. Brandon Kinsler got the save. His first, he pitched both games in this series because there was an off day in the middle because of the supposed rainout.
Here's what I have to say about this series. First, for the Marlins, this is a very impressive team. They're young. They're fearless. They come at the game with reckless abandon. They've had to replace countless numbers of players because of the COVID outbreak in the third game of the season, and yet kept themselves around 500, finished the season over 500, and then come into Chicago, a place that they won a playoff series back in 2003. Everybody remembers the Steve Bartman game. And they just outright dominate the Cubs. They allow just one run in 18 innings against Chicago. And while Miami's offense was not necessarily that impressive themselves, they scored all seven of their runs in the series in the seventh inning. Five on Wednesday and two yesterday. Miami still found a way to get the job done. The Marlins are going to face the Braves in the next round. And I'll say this, with the amount of off time, If you're going to be able to line it up to have Sandy Alcantara, Sixto Sanchez, and by the way, Sixto Sanchez got the start in this game for Miami. He went five shutout, four hits allowed, two walks, and six strikeouts. And then also followed up with Pablo Lopez. I imagine that Lopez might get the start in game one because he didn't pitch in this series. And then you'll go to Alcantara and Sanchez. Miami's got a good young rotation. Their bullpen is solid. I know that Atlanta has a much more impressive offense, and they scored 29 runs against the Marlins in a game earlier this year. I am not betting against Miami at any point in this series upcoming. The Marlins are dangerous. They're a surprise to everybody, but they are dangerous nonetheless. They've been fun. They're calling themselves the bottom feeders because of a comment from an NBC Sports Philadelphia pre- and post-game host about the Phillies needing to beat up on bottom feeders. The Marlins, because they're fish, have taken that to new heights. They're wearing shirts with that now. I find it immensely entertaining. One more stat on the Marlins that I think is really fun. The Marlins are just the second team in baseball history to make the playoffs after losing over 100 games their previous season. Now, Granted, they didn't have a chance to even play 100 games this year, but they did end up making the playoffs after losing 105 games last year, and they're the first team in baseball history to win a postseason series following a year in which they lost over 100 games. Everything about the 2020 Miami Marlins defies logic. Now for the Cubs. The Cubs' offense is pitiful. And this is from Jared Burson, ESPN Stats and Info Researcher. The Cubs have batted 161 over 13 playoff games since winning the 2016 World Series. Not only is that their worst 13-game span in franchise postseason history, but it's also lower than any 13-game span they've posted in the regular season since at least 1900. That, to me, to be able to track any 13-game span is amazing, but the fact that they made the playoffs in 2017, and they got to the NLCS in 2017, and in 2018, and this includes the tiebreaker game against the Milwaukee Brewers that decided the division, and then the wild card game against the Colorado Rockies. So, for the Cubs, their offense was pitiful. It was pitiful the whole year. It was pitiful in this series. The lone run that the Cubs scored in this series came on an Ian Happ solo homer. They went 3-for-27 with runners on base in the series. 
Not runners in scoring position, runners on base. Javier Baez, Chris Bryant, and Anthony Rizzo went 0 for 12 on Friday and went 1 for 24 in the series. That's your core. That's the lineup that got you to the World Series in 2016. That's what you built this franchise around. 1 for 24. They are also 19 for 142, which is a 134 average, with 52 strikeouts and 6 walks in the playoffs since the 2016 World Series. This Cubs offense is bad. It was bad the whole year. It has been bad, and I honestly don't know what you can do at this point that is going to convince the Cubs that you can run it back with this crew one more time. I think that this has been the end of the championship-era Chicago Cubs. Chris Bryant is going to be an unrestricted free agent after next season. Javier Baez is going to be an unrestricted free agent after next season. I don't know if you can give those guys top dollar, not only given COVID, but because of the fact that the Cubs don't necessarily want to spend the money on guys that are past their prime in terms of productivity. And look, I do not think that Javier Baez and Chris Bryant are past their prime. Chris Bryant won the MVP in 2016. Javier Baez was second in the NL MVP voting in 2018. Granted, only a 60-game sample size, and Bryant was hurt, so I'm going to look up these numbers for you. Javier Baez just fell off the face of the planet this year. He hit 203 with 24 RBI and 8 home runs. He blames it on not having any in-game video. I don't know if you can just blame it on that. Javier Baez from 2016 to 2019 hit above 270 all four years. He hit over 20 homers in three of those four years, and granted in 2016 he wasn't the same type of power bat. And in terms of his on-base percentage, he was over, and Javi Baez is not a guy that walks a whole lot, he was over 310 in each of those four years. Javi Baez had an on-base of 238 this year. Something happened to Javier Baez. I don't know what, but he's not the same player. Maybe he'll go back to being what he was, but I have a hard time finding the Cubs remaining competitive with this core of guys moving forward if they obviously don't improve offensively. Their bullpen this year was also not very good. It's not really worth me going over the stats of their lineup because the stats in their lineup in Game 2, it was just pathetic. Jason Hayward went 2 for 3. Ian Happ went 2 for 4. The rest of the team went 1 for 24. 1 for 24 outside of Ian Happ and Jason Hayward. I think a lot of people are encouraged by what Ian Happ has become. And a lot of people are encouraged by what Jason Hayward has done to get his offensive game back on track. But when you have a hitless Kyle Schwarber, a hitless Chris Bryant, a hitless Javier Baez, a hitless Wilson Contreras, then I'm sorry. You have officially gotten to the point where you are no longer a dominant offensive team. So let's finish this up by getting into a brief little preview of the upcoming series, and the pitching matchups have not been announced yet, but A's and Astros are going to start it off 
in Los Angeles at 1.07 Pacific time on Monday. Oh my God, why can't you put the East Coast game first? Put the East Coast game at 5 o'clock Eastern. Oh, the Yankee bias, just I can't handle it. But anyways, it'll be the A's and the Astros at 1.07 Pacific time on Monday. The Yankees and the Rays will kick it off at 5.07 Pacific time, 8.07 Eastern time on Monday. Nobody's announced any pitching matchups for that yet. Tuesday is going to be the Dodgers and the Padres from Arlington, Texas, and the Marlins and the Braves from Enron Field. Well, Minute Maid Park. It was once known as Enron Field in Houston. Thanks for listening to another edition of MLB Morning Coffee, a production of the Ocean Avenue Studios in San Francisco, California. We are going to have our award special for you either tomorrow or Monday. I know that we said we were going to do it earlier this week. Got caught up with a couple of things, so we're going to have to put it off until either tomorrow or Monday. But thanks again for listening. Have a great rest of your day. And as always, remember, Black Lives Matter.